episode of Progress, Potential, and Possibilities, discussions with fascinating people designing a better tomorrow for all of us. I'm your host, Ira Pastor. Welcome, everybody, again to another episode of our show, bringing you another fascinating guest today, helping to create a better tomorrow for all of us. Uh, we have the honor of today of being joined uh, by Dr. Sachin Panda, who is Professor of Regulatory Biology Laboratory and Rita and Richard Atkinson Chair at the Salk Institute for Biologic Studies in La Jolla, California, uh, where his research focuses uh, on the circadian regulation of behavior physiology and metabolism uh, in both model organisms and in humans. Uh, Dr. Panda is also a founding executive member of the Center for Circadian Biology uh, at the University of California, San Diego, uh, with his PhD uh, from the Scripps Institute in La Jolla and his postdoc research uh, at the Genomics Institute of the Novartis Research Foundation in San Diego. Uh, Dr. Panda's laboratory is interested in understanding uh, the molecular mechanisms of this biologic clock or circadian oscillator, uh, ultimately, which most organisms coordinates behavior and physiology within uh, natural light and dark cycles. Uh, among Dr. Panda's discoveries uh, have included the, uh, the blue light sensing cell type uh, in our retina that uh, helps them train our master circadian clock, ultimately affecting mood uh, and regulating the production of uh, the sleep hormone melatonin. He's also made the discovery about maintaining daily feeding fasting cycles, popularly known as time-restricted feeding, which can help prevent and reverse some metabolic diseases. And ultimately, based on feasibility studies in humans, his lab is currently uh, carrying out a very interesting smartphone-based study uh, to assess the extent of circadian disruption among adults. Uh, his laboratory uses various genetic, genomic, and biochemical approaches to identify genes under circadian regulation in different organs, ultimately understand the mechanisms of these regulations. Dr. Panda is also a Pew Biomedical Scholar, recipient of the uh, Julie Martin Mid-Career Award in Aging Research, uh, is extensively published in the scientific literature, and is the author of the book, uh, The Circadian Code, uh, Lose Weight, Supercharge Your Energy, and Transform Your Health from Morning to Midnight. A lot of interesting topics to discuss, but Dr. Sachin Panda, thank you so much for coming on the show to talk to us. Thank you a lot, and I'm glad to be here. It's, it's great to have you. Um, I'd love to, as we typically do, give you the floor uh, to start out for a couple of minutes just to, to talk a little bit more about yourself. Uh, if you could take us back a bit to uh, everything from uh, where you grew up uh, to how you got interested in this fascinating uh, domain of research, I, I think that'd be a great way to start things off. Yeah, I was uh, born and I grew up in India, and I grew up in India in a fascinating time. Um, in 70s and 80s when you know, we saw the transition from uh, when the radio stations used to, <laughs> and the TV stations used to stop, close the station at 9 p.m. to 24 hours uh, newscast and 24 hours entertainment. Similarly, uh, that's the transition when India went through a revolution from agrarian economy to more service and product-oriented economies with a lot of factories and services that came online uh, showing, uh, disrupting circadian rhythm of many people. So I kind of experienced this firsthand. And then I was wondering, well, for most of our biomedical research, uh, we never considered how the body is disrupted by sleep deprivation or when we stay awake late into the night and when we uh, work throughout, the, uh, throughout 24 hours. 
And that inspired me to look into this, at that time, neglected field of biology, circadian biology, because there are a handful of people around the world who were studying this. And it was extremely hard to get in those labs. So I had a very long, windy path to, <laughs> to winding path to one of the uh, leaders of circadian biology, uh, Steve Kay, who was at Institute, and that's where I did my PhD work in circadian rhythm in plants. And the interesting thing is, since plants, microbes, humans, we all have the same 24 hour rhythms, you can study these rhythms in one organism, find some biological principles that are common between the plants and humans and then use them to study even humans and mice. So this was really fascinating and that helped me to transition from plants to drosophila, fruit flies, and then mice. And then finally, we're working now with human circadian rhythm. And um, I'm also seeing that um, more and more almost, I can say for sure that almost all of us at one point in our life, are night shift workers because just like the definition of shift work is to be awake for two to three hours between 10 p.m. and 5 a.m. for 50 days in a year. So mm -hmm. that is once a week. If you stay awake for two to three hours between 10 p.m. and 5 a.m. Uh, on an average, then that classifies you as shift workers. So right now, in industrialized countries like the US, nearly one in five working adults is a card carrying shift workers. That means they're working in the medical field, healthcare, or services, um, or law enforcement. And then there are another one in five who are in informal shift work. For example, in gig economy, uh, people who are doing food delivery. Um, Uber driver, uh, we don't typically call them a shift workers, but they live the life of a shift worker. Then almost every high school student or college student in this in industrialized countries, they don't go to bed before midnight. And they wake up just before their first uh, class in the morning. And in fact, the policy has changed to an extent that now in most universities, um, they ignore the importance of sleep and the deadline for submitting your homework is around midnight. So that means there is a institutionalized approach to disrupt your sleep and circadian rhythm in late adolescence, early teens, and in young adults. So almost everybody is going, it's now forced because it's now institutionalized, is forced to go through chronic circadian rhythm disruption during the peak learning phase. So all of this kind of made me, makes me even more excited about what we do in understanding the relevance of circadian rhythms and figuring out how we can fix it to improve health for everyone, irrespective of age, gender, ethnicity, or health condition. It's really interesting you brought up the, the part about the students, because uh, well, I've, I have one son that's you know in college right now. And he follows <laughs> that disruptive schedule. Uh, I was reading something though uh, a little while ago that um, 
I don't know if it was, you know, 100 years ago or 150 years ago, but it was talking about, you know, more the agrarian world that, you know, farmers and so forth used to wake up, as you were saying, whatever time it was, and do certain things <laughs> in the agrarian world and then go back to bed. And it got me thinking, just as you were just talking about that, is sort of the one specific uh, circadian cycle for humans that is optimal or are there... Are there strange cases, you know, depending whether you live, at, you know, at the equator or closer to the poles or what's it like in terms of because, you know, you think about everything we're learning about sort of uh, genomics and, 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 and pharmacogenomics and things of this nature. Um, are there sort of exceptions to the rule still out there that, hey, you know, going to bed for eight hours, that's not right. And, and, <laughs> and the other cases that you see, I was just, you know, you, you just got me thinking about this, uh, this is sort of. Uh, a slightly different question, but you know, take that one any way you want to. Well, let's uh, come back to you. You mentioned that there was, you there somewhere that the farmers were waking up in the middle of the yeah. night, taking care of something, and then going back to sleep. Um, we don't see any data, factual data that supports it. Okay, people will go back and say, you know, some writer, some somebody wrote that they woke up at three o'clock in the morning and then right. wrote it very productive at that, at that time, and they went back to sleep. Of course, um, we have to respect that because that's well documented. But the question is, we don't hear whether that person was waking up at three o'clock and going back after two hours or something. How was his health? Right. We don't have that. So for example, if I say that, well, 150 years ago, people all over the world had heartburn. That doesn't make it sure. that it's normal, and we should not pay attention to fix it. <laughs> um, because there are many studies now where people have uh, objectively measured sleep and activity by putting an active Fitbit-like device on their wrist for 40, 45 days. In all these societies, which have no access to electricity, and they still live a very ancestral life. And we don't see any evidence that they wake up systematically every night. In fact, what we see surprisingly is they actually stay awake till 9.30 or 10 o'clock at night, even with a little bit of firelight or candlelight or kerosene lamplight. And then uh, they have a very strict, very um, uh, regular sleep, sleep schedule and they wake up around uh, sunrise, just before sunrise. So that's what we now, coming back to whether eight hours of sleep is um, optimum or not, actually the uh, surveys that have been taken up in the last several uh, decades, two or three decades in multiple countries, totaling millions of people, uh, the bottom line is people who sleep somewhere between six and a half to seven hours sleep, not in bed. Uh, they have the best health, people who sleep more than say nine hours, so people who sleep less than say five hours, uh, they have more health issues and they don't live as long as people who sleep between six and seven hours. So now, uh, how come this eight hours of <laughs> eight hours take them? Uh, the thing is, when you go to bed, it might take uh, somewhere between 15 minutes to half an hour to fall asleep. And then sometimes people may wake up in the morning and then they're still lying in bed before they get out of bed. So that's why 
the rule of thumb is try to be in bed for eight hours so that you can do six and a half to seven hours of sleep consistently. And coming back to another point at the new genomics, genetics um, experiments that have shown any outliers. Yes, there are outliers. Um, few outliers, for example, relate to uh, human development. So for example, during teenagers and post-teenagers, like early 20s, we are more likely to go to bed late and we are more likely to wake up later. So that's the time when teenagers are more susceptible to light at night. So since we light up our home so well, they're more likely to lose sleep and they are designed to kind of stay awake a little bit later. So as a result, what happens is uh, we should not force our teenagers, children to wake up at six o'clock, get ready to go to school, reach school before 7.15 we should actually delay high school start time so that they can catch up with the required sleep so that they can perform better. And uh, translate that to real life situations. So as you know, there are many states now, including California, which has mandated a later school start time mm -hmm. based on the plans. So this is one example of how uh, there are exceptions depending on developmental states. And there are also genes which are extremely rare, mutations in certain genes will actually make a person to sleep only five hours and still feel they're fully rested. These individuals are extremely rare. Um, they're less than one in a thousand. So anybody who is sleeping less than five hours should not think that they have a gene, they have a clean pulse. Yeah, as you as you mentioned, you know some of these outliers, and you're talking about the genes, obviously um, the the genomics, the proteomics of, of circadian biology is is a core piece of your lab. And as you know, mentioned in, the, in in your bio, obviously there's uh, a neurologic component to this. There's an endocrine component. Um, obviously, everything from the way the light hits your eye and then translates information and so forth and so on. What are you finding out in terms of sort of the, the total, I mean, I'm sure there's a lot going on on sort of this genomic landscape uh, behind these, uh, the circadian oscillating system. Uh, what, what are some of the highlights that you're seeing are these uh, genes that are uh, involved in meta mainly metabolism? Uh, you know, obviously I, I saw some paper from back in the 1970s uh, that was done by one of the fathers of chronobiology talking about uh, uh, different areas in the, the super Chiasmatic nucleus and, 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 and ablation experiments that were done back in the day. But what are some of the interesting things that, that you're coming up with on the genomics front uh, that uh, yeah. uh, that really cool in this context? Yeah, I think the genomics uh, is definitely a very powerful tool because we can look at um, every gene in our genome and when it turns on and when it turns off in a 24 hour basis. And a lot of the experiments. So for these kind of experiments, what we need to do is, what we typically do is we take laboratory animals and we put them in very well-defined circadian um, environment. So they have a well-defined light-dark cycle. And in some experiments, we also give them food at the right time, the fine amount of food. And um, 
unfortunately, for a very long time, we focused on mice and Drosophila flies, but they sure. expect Drosophila are invertebrates and they dig very short. They are not, they cannot even maintain their core body temperature. They've been very useful in discovering circadian clock genes, but the extent of circadian gene expression um, is indicative but not completely relatable to humans. The yeah. mice are nocturnal, they're night active, night, they're active at night, they sleep during daytime, but they sleep continuously as we humans do. So that's why a few years ago we did a very comprehensive experiment where we collected brain regions, 22 different brain regions and 40 plus peripheral organs, kidney, liver, etc., cetera, uh, from uh, non-human and then did genomics approach to see which gene is turning on and off at different times. To our surprise, what we found is almost every single gene in the genome may be turning on and off at a defined time in at least one. So that means, so for example, what we find found is almost every neurotransmitter system in the brain has some circadian modulation. That means at certain time of the day, the dopamine system those uh, different kind of systems that we are very familiar with, they may be slightly up or slightly down. Similarly, the peripheral organs, we knew that melatonin goes up and down. Mm-hmm. At the same time, you also found almost every other hormone has a circadian component to it. That means they rise and fall. Similarly, the digestive system also has a very strong circadian rhythm. So that means our digestion is primed to take place much better within eight to 12 hours window. And then the digestive system has to repair and regenerate every night because we do a lot of damage during the process of digestion. Just imagine we're eating the same meat and sushi that goes through our digestive system. We digest that. <laughs> so there is definitely some damage has to happen. Dot lining. So those repairs happen during our sleep. So similarly, uh, so now we can say that almost every neurotransmitter or brain chemical, every digestive enzyme, and every enzyme in our liver, muscle, everywhere that uh, metabolizes energy, glucose, protein, fat, to each other to one another or to produce energy, those processes from the circadian. And more importantly, what we find, which is kind of ignored in many cases, is most of our DNA damage repair and cellular damage repair, autophagy, recycling processes. Mm-hmm. They, seem be, they seem to be circadian and they seem to be present in many, many different organs. So just imagine if we we all can drive fancy cars, but if we don't tune them up and repair them at the right time, then mm-hmm. the value of cars go down. Similarly, we are all given a very powerful priceless body, and this body is programmed by the circadian rhythm to go through auto repair every yep. night. Uh, our inflammation goes down due to circadian rhythm, and our DNA damage repair process goes up at night time. Our growth hormone is released in our sleep, and that helps uh, repair many of this stuff. And conversely, the circadian genomics experiments also has helped us to find if we chronically disrupt circadian rhythm in mm-hmm. human, mice, or laboratory animals, 
what are the consequences? And what we're finding is the risk for at molecular level, what we find is the risk for many chronic diseases actually grow up if we do circadian disruption. So for example, if you take a healthy human, completely fit young human and put, some, put him or her through a circadian disruptive shift work-like paradigm where the person stays awake and cannot sleep for more than five hours, you know, so it's poor at random time, then that person can become pre-diabetic or can show early signs of mm-hmm. within a few days or weeks. And now we can use the genomics technology to see what are this or proteomics technology, metabolomics technology to see what are changing in the blood, what are changing in the muscle or other tissues that we can sample. And we're finding that this there's a very close connection between circadian disruption and metabolic disease because there's a wealth of information from metabolic research over the last 100 years. Also wealth of information on cancer. Uh, What we're finding is circadian disruption increases the risk for many of these diseases. In fact, we did a kind of a summary of um, laboratory experiments, epidemiological studies, controlled human studies, where circadian disruption happened, and then people measured the risk for disease. We found that the risk for almost 100 different diseases, starting from um, ADSD, autism spectrum disorder, to depression, diabetes, obesity, breast cancer risk, colon cancer risk, dementia, the liver disease, many of them, the risk go up. So, so when you have circadian disruption, it's like taking your fancy car and going off-roading. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever cars you may have, when you go off-roading for a long time, you're bound to damage your car. So it's the same thing we are finding in, in humans. Got it. And, and, you know, continuing along that, you know, you, you've, you've published an extensive amount of, um, of peer-reviewed literature on time-restricted eating, uh, whether it pertains to uh, overweight, metabolic disorders, recently one for uh, related to autophagy and aging, uh, a lot of exciting publications. Can you, can you sort of break down some of the basics in terms of, of, of what you're finding in terms of time-restricted feeding and then re- related to what you were just mentioning about when to do uh, things uh, or appropriate you know, consumption and what have you? It got me thinking, and we'll get into sort of chronotherapeutics in a bit, but um, you know, I take my blood pressure drug every day. I take it in the morning. I don't know if that's right or not, or whether 8 a.m. versus 5 p.m. What, what are you learning as you study some of these genes uh, that, you know, obviously you mentioned metabolism. They obviously control not just the metabolism of, of our foods, but also all the, the Xeno products that we take in. Any interesting findings in terms of uh, chronopharmaceutical or chronobiology related to pharmacotherapies? Yeah, so that's a very loaded question. Let me break it down. Hey, Dad. Okay. Please do. Yeah, so... So um, we coined this term time restricted feeding um, nine, 10 years ago. It was a very simple experiment. The experiment was based on a very simple idea that, well, we, the circadian rhythm field had come to the conclusion that yes, light is a very strong modulator of our circadian rhythm. And we all know that because uh, it's very hard to sleep in a brightly lit room. So we disrupt our sleep. 
So like that cycle is so important to train our circadian rhythm. Second, uh, we and others have also published many papers showing that when mice eat, strongly influences circadian rhythm in almost every brain region and every peripheral organ except the suprachiasmatic nucleus. So that means except for these 20,000 or so neurons, the rest of the body and brain closely tracks when we eat. And that was kind of a aha moment in, in circadian rhythm failure, personally for me, because I was thinking, well, we're trying to figure out how to optimize light and we don't have control over lighting, but we know when to eat because our, our day revolves around schedules. We make a, whether you maintain a very formal calendar or not, in our brain, we always think what time we should wake up, what time we have to drop our tears, what time pick up grocery, everything. We, we, we organize our daily life around time. So can we organize timing of food? So the simple experiment that we did was to let mice eat whatever they want within an eight hour window in the first experiment, or they eat the same number of calories from the same food, whatever they want over 24 hours. And what we found was when these mice ate within eight hours, their circadian rhythm was very robust. So that means the genes that are supposed to be turned on at certain time, they completely turned on. And then the genes that are supposed to be turned off at certain time, they completely turned off. So by, by making the genes turning on at the right time, so for example, the digestive juice turning on to the full extent when the mice were eating, or turning off the genes that make the mouse awake at night, uh, during the sleep phase, so that the mice can go to deep sleep. These things kind of a huge impact. So what we found was uh, this time that we did was a very strong modulator of physiology, metabolism, and behavior because these mice are completely protected from weight gain. They did not develop fatty liver disease. They did not have high cholesterol. The heart function was very healthy. They doubled their endurance, which was a huge surprise for us. And they improved their motor coordination uh, so they could they could climb on a run on a rotating ground for a long time, and also now we are finding that they sleep much better. So that now has become very popular as intermittent, the most common form of intermittent fasting, and we still call it time eating because these experiments reduce their calories. So now when we go back and measure the gene expression in these mice and in other organisms. Uh, as you clearly mentioned that the genes and proteins that break down our food, they give us nutrients, they build some building materials so that we can rebuild, repair ourselves. So similarly, um, there are genes and metabolic pathways that break down or utilize the medications that we take. So that means at certain time of the day, it's maybe a circadian rhythm maybe telling our body to better utilize the medication mm -hmm. uh, have less adverse side effect. Um, these are two very important aspects because sometimes we take medication, but then the adverse effects are so severe that we stop taking the medication every day. Um, or in other cases, we may be taking the medication, but if we're taking at the wrong time, then our body is not utilizing that medication. So we may not get any benefit. 
So for example, the comprehensive survey of the top 20 best-selling drugs in the US uh, that found that uh, for every person who takes the medication and gets benefit, there are three to 21 people who take the same medication and don't get the health benefit. So that means the best-selling drugs actually help one in three to one in 21 people who take these drugs. Mm. To, which is really astounding because we we spend billions of dollars in developing and marketing these drugs and we spend a lot of money and a pain also to stick yep. this. But what if we optimize the timing? Can we even increase the efficacy by 10 to 15%? That would be huge. So imagine if, if 100 people are taking the cancer drug and it's not benefiting 80 of them, and now we can improve so that it now benefits uh, 30 people and not 70, then that's a 10%. That's a huge improvement. And that's almost like having the next drug. So, but we and other and the circadian rhythm field have found that nearly 80% of FDA approved drugs, um, at least based on the genomics data, they can be optimized to be taken at a certain time of the day. So the efficacy goes up. We have seen many examples, real examples in the field. So for example, for many breast cancer drugs, chemo, the mm -hmm. much better chemo is given in the morning, whereas for some other okay. chemo, the much better one that's given at the evening time. So uh, that's one example. Second example that has been reduced to practice is arthritis medication or pain medication. We know that the arthritis pain is more severe in the morning. Okay. If you take the medicine in the morning, uh, then it's not that effective because it, it's almost like the pain has left the station and you're just come. <laughs> the drug is not going to have much impact. So what people have found is if the same pain medication is taken at bedtime, then uh, it has much better effect on reducing pain in the morning. And now that has been further modified to slow release formulation of arthritis pain medication to be taken in the evening or bedtime so that can improve, that can reduce pain in the morning. Coming back to blood pressure medication, there are now many studies showing that uh, there are two aspects to it. One is just like we go to sleep at night, that means that you have to take the sleep medication before bedtime, not in the morning, <laughs> because if you want to sleep at night, the medication. Similarly, our heart actually goes to rest at night. So that means our blood pressure goes down, and our heart also goes down at night. And it's a healthy sign when your blood pressure actually goes down slightly at night in your sleep. So that means if you're taking a blood pressure medication, this target is to reduce your blood pressure, then it's way much better to take the blood pressure medication at bedtime, irrespective of what target it is, uh, um, what the mechanism is. This is very similar to taking the sleep medication at nighttime. Similarly, take your blood pressure lowering medication at nighttime. And there are studies spanning several years showing that people who take the blood pressure medication in the evening or bedtime have much better heart health for the next five or 10 years than the same than the cohort that takes the medication in the morning. Similarly, what we expect is in many areas of um, therapy, we will see this timing component playing out. 
And there might be two or three different versions of it. So for example, it's not only chemotherapy or drug, it also might apply to vaccination. And uh, there are some data from old vaccine, vaccination against flu showing that people who have consistent good sleep for two to three days before vaccination and those who take vaccines in the morning are more likely to produce a robust immunity in a relatively shorter, less number of days than people who are disrupted sleep and are taking and or taking the vaccination even. Then another idea is radiation therapy. Our lab and many other labs have shown that radiation therapy for cancer, um, whether it's given in the morning or evening, can have very different effect, adverse effect, at least in laboratory animals. So we hope that it can translate to humans. It also applies to surgery. So there are uh, heart valve replacement surgery is done in the same hospital by the same team in the morning versus evening. And people have shown that the five-year survival for the people going through the surgery in the morning are much better than in the evening. People might think that the surgeons are more <laughs> a lot in the morning, uh, but this has also been replicated to some extent in laboratory mouse models. So there are many areas where this will play out. The other aspect is now, if we think that timing of food or time-restricted eating is a robust signal to our circadian rhythm, can we combine time-restricted eating with medication to even improve the efficacy of drugs? We don't have data to systematically address this question, but in a paper that we published a couple of years ago, we had taken patients who had metabolic syndrome. So that means many of them had high blood pressure, high cholesterol, high blood sugar. Um, they were also overweight or obese. And many of them were already on cholesterol-lowering medication or blood pressure-lowering medication. And when they went through this 10 hours time restricting, so that means they were eating for 10 hours, fasting for 14 hours. And after 12 weeks, what we found was um, many of these patients improved their blood pressure, uh, they reduced their cholesterol, they also saw some improvement in the blood glucose and weight. And what was interesting was the improvement that they found, we found, was disproportionately bigger than what you'd expect if they lost some weight. Mm -hmm. That means the very little weight or no weight, but their uh, health outcomes are much better. One may say that this is solely due to time restricting, but we cannot rule out the possibility that maybe the time restricting along with the medication actually boosted the effect of the medication. So this is one area that needs to be examined in more detail in future to figure out whether people who are taking these medications can combine that with time restricting or intermittent fasting to further boost the effect, beneficial effect of medication and or, or reduce the adverse effect of medication. Fascinating. Fascinating all the different interactions and the relationships between these systems that exist. Um, really amazing work. Um, wh while I have you, I just want to um, bring sort of the third component in here. You know, your team has been, it was instrumental in, in, in discovering uh, the, the important function of, of this uh, blue light sensitive protein, melanopsin, and, and its importance in, in regulating different aspects of the circadian clock. Just um, can you, can you just talk for a little bit on sort of uh, where we are with regard to uh, not just 
what you know about blue light, you know, good during daytime, not a, you know, good when you're lying down in bed to go to sleep, but any other interesting findings that have come up recently, uh, whether it has to do with the blue light or other interesting wavelengths and so forth uh, in this work? Yeah, so this is this was an interesting discovery 20 years ago because uh, that time I kind of outlined it in my first book, The Scadian Code, mm -hmm. that till that time we knew that there are many blind people who cannot read, so who cannot see, mm -hmm. but they can slide. So that means just like when we go from East Coast to West Coast or West Coast to East Coast, we have jet lag, but after four or five days, we adapt, we accommodate, we can mm -hmm. reach out. So similarly, these blind people could also reset their clock uh, after a jet lag. So there was this idea that there must be some light sensors. So that's what we discovered that uh, we and two other labs who discovered around that time that there are these two light sensing proteins called melanopsin. Yeah. And this example where basic science in arcane and <laughs> unrelated fields can help because the word melanopsin implies that this is an opsin or light sensing molecule that's present in melanogen or the pigment bearing skin cells of frogs. So actually, the melanopsin was initially discovered in frog skin because certain frogs, when they are in sunlight, they disperse their uh, pigment. Mm -hmm. It's almost like natural um, UV protector, so they become dark in color. So that light sensing molecule in frog skin was also surprisingly found to be present in human retina and mouse retina. And subsequently, after we identified the gene and figured out what it does, we figured out that it senses blue light in 480 nanometers, so that's cyan blue color. And daylight or sunlight is the most richest source of blue light. Um, and firelight or candlelight that is yellow in color, a poor source of blue light. And then in, this, in the last intervening 20 years, we and others have found that this blue light sensing cells in the retina, they send their axons or they connect to many other parts of the brain, not only the circadian clock, they also connect to part of the brain that senses uh, visual scenes, that senses that regulate uh, migraine pain, that regulate mm -hmm. sleep and melatonin production, and many, many other brain regions that we still are trying to figure out what they do. The bottom line is um, this blue light sensing melanopsin, when they sense blue light, of course. We know that at night, if we have too much blue light, we cannot sleep. But in the daytime, when we have enough blue light information, so for example, when we go out to daylight, even on a cloudy day, there's enough blue light that will activate this system so that it reduces depression and increases alertness. This gave us a direct clue why in wintertime, a lot of people become depressed and we always thought that they are not getting enough light yeah. and what color light and now that we have the clue, that means uh, the daylight is the best antidepressant, it's plentiful and free. You just have to step outside or sit next to a large window to get 30 to 45 minutes of it. And particularly in winter, in winter um, the weather can be harsh, that can be snow, that can be freezing cold outside. And a lot of people don't go outside. Yeah. But you can actually open your 
cottons and sit, have a nice breakfast, long breakfast next to a glass window and you'll get your light. Then one thing that we also have done in the last couple of years is most of this blue light research was done using mouse as a model. Now that direct measure blue light response in human retina. And in collaboration with a great ophthalmologist in Neverland Scripps Research Institute, Dr. Anne Hanneken, we are able to record for the first time how these blue light sensors work in human retina. And this is, again, this might possible because some generous organ donors had donated their eyes after their death. So mm. access to those eyes and we carefully, ethically um, subjected those retina to discrete blue light pulses. And then we found that in addition to what has been described in mouth, we found a new type of blue light sensors in human retina. And these blue light sensors actually need little bit of more light to be activated, but they act very quickly, they have the post response, and the implications can be huge because it also showed that um, it needs vitamin A derivative to activate these cells. Okay. So it's possible that we know that people change, people differ in the response to blue light. Some people need a lot of blue light, some people need less blue light to disrupt their sleep or to feel a lot. So this opened new avenues to understand why people differ from one person to another in their sensitivity. The other thing that have happened in the last four or five years is the science of blue light has become very strong. It's very reproducible and the physiological and brain response are very strong. And we know that as we get older, we have less mobility. Older people are less likely to venture outside to get daylight. And we also know that when we don't have strong circadian signal, whether it's light-dark cycle or eating fasting cycle, that increases our uh, risk for dementia and neurodegenerative disease. Mm -hmm. The idea is, can we redesign our oldest homes or medical facilities so that this older individuals actually are getting enough light. So can we redesign the windows? Can we redesign even screens, lighting? Instead of overhead lighting, can we have horizontal lighting on the wall or on the pillars so that these patients can have strong light signal even if they're in there during the daytime? And also come up with lighting design at night where we don't have to light up the whole room. They have to get up to go to the bathroom. Where we can have floor lighting, or safe lighting, with orange lighting. So I think this is a clear example of how circadian rhythm research is redesigning our indoor environment to optimize health among people who actually need it and they may not act by themselves. Of course, there are a lot of people of us we go and purchase the blue filtering eyeglasses to help us to sleep. Mm -hmm. That is enough for this right. particular Sure. Also, UL underwriter labs and many, um, many agencies that put guidelines for lighting, now they're incorporating circadian lighting as part of standard building lighting. Um, just recently, a few years ago, we have been, I mean, the scientists influenced the policy to an extent that the International Space Station has circadian lighting. Because mm -hmm. we, 
you cannot afford for the astronauts to have any sleep disorders. They need to sleep well to perform well. We have a, uh, we have a lot of um, assets and <laughs> experiments at risk. And that's just an example. Now we are seeing in ICUs, in hospitals, we can optimize lighting. And in many learning environments, for example, in schools and colleges, as we are geared towards looking at overhead projector slides in dark room, we have to now think of how to optimize lighting for our students so that they can learn. So there are advances starting from molecules to circuits to public policy to lighting manufacturing. And this is really gratifying to see because just imagine 20 years ago, no one knew anything about lighting. There was no guideline about screen time or screen brightness. Sure. And now billions of rectangular pieces of devices, whether it's cell phones or laptops or tablets, they already have inbuilt mechanism to tell the instrument, tell your devices that at nine o'clock, 10 o'clock, dim down the screen and change from blue enriching white background to night shift mode or night mode. Even apps and OS operating systems now have night shift features. And I, in my mind, I think there are very few scientific discoveries that transformed public health in a period, period of time and raised billions of people. So we're very fortunate that the scientific community and the public have worked together to implement this, but we still have long way to go. Such a while I have you, just want to ask if you could say us a couple words uh, about, uh, you had a paper back in uh, February, uh, Journal of Biologic Rhythms, uh, titled A Timely Call to Arms, COVID-19, The Circadian Clock and Critical Care. And here you were talking about sort of the, uh, the bi-directional, you know, ways that not only can the circadian component of human biology affect, say, the viral progression, but also the reverse, how um, we can use the circadian clock to ultimately help mitigate diseases like this, not just COVID, but potentially in the future. Uh, just to say a, a few things about this, if you would, because I think it's a, another fascinating connection that we may not normally think about, uh, virology, immunology, and obviously connections to circadian rhythms, but uh, what, what do you find out here? I mean, there are two or three different levels to this question. One is, uh, what can we do to improve our uh, resilience against yep. this disease? Um, and worldwide, there is a common acceptance that uh, we always say people at a high risk uh, should be protected. And who are those people? People who are older, who have a dampened circadian rhythm or dampened immune function, people who are, have metabolic disease, and we now know that People with metabolic disease also have a dampened or disrupted circadian rhythm. And if we fix their circadian rhythm, then we can improve their metabolic health. So one thing that everyone can do is to pay attention to their circadian rhythm by optimizing it by time eating, sleeping, and we'll get to those at the end. And by doing that, they can reduce their risk of contracting this disease, or if they contract, then they may not go through more severe form of the disease symptoms. Mm -hmm. So in that way, you can at least reduce. I'm not saying that <laughs> we can prevent the disease. We can sure. deal with it. It's all about reducing risk. Um, now the second is those who unfortunately who get the disease and have symptoms 
and have to go through quarantine. We know that these people are indoor for 14 and sometimes 20, 30, 40 days because if you're in ICU. Yeah. And all the indoor environments um, are circadianly disrupted because you are, you are stuck in a closed room. You don't have much sense of time. There is no bright light, daylight. You have no access to daylight. And uh, it may have pain that you, your sleep is disrupted for many of those days. So we know that if you take even patients who are not COVID-19 patients, who are in ICU, nearly 30% of them develop malaria. And improving circadian rhythm signals by giving them access to day and night signal can reduce that malaria. So now can we extrapolate to see uh, what might be happening in COVID patients? So in many COVID patients, when they're going through 20 or 30 days of no circadian signal, when they're stuck in indoor space, quarantine, they cannot even go outside to get some daylight. Of course, they're not doing any exercise. Uh, that might be also triggering or contributing to the severity of post-COVID syndrome. Mm. So uh, one idea is those who are who have recovered from COVID, it's very important that they should go back to their circadian lifestyle in the sense they should at least go outdoor, get some bright light for half an hour, 30 minutes to an hour. Although many of them might have developed some heart complications, they cannot go exercise, at least they should go outside, even if they can slowly walk, that's okay. And they should also try to eat within 10 hours or eight hours if they can, because we are finding that time-restricted eating also helps people improve their sleep. And many post-COVID patients do have sleep disturbances. Nearly 60 plus percent of post-COVID patients report sleep disturbances. And so we think that at least by adopting the circadian, optimum circadian lifestyle, before and after COVID, uh, we can lessen the severity of the disease. And now during the uh, disease, you know, not, not all who get COVID end up in hospitals. There are a lot of patients who stay at home, they're quarantined. We also have to pay attention that, okay, so even if you are at home, try to open the windows to get some daylight during daytime that will improve their mood, uh, reduce loneliness of being in quarantine. And uh, the caregivers should be mindful of that because in many parts of the world, people think that if you open the window, the virus will come out of the room and will spread in the neighborhood. It doesn't happen that way. <laughs> if you have a glass window, at least remove the curtain and bring some daylight. So there are sure. some very simple things one can do. And in terms of virus affecting the clock, of course, that's a very um, mechanistic molecular studies. And um, we still have to get to that and see, does it really, how, what is the extent of virus disrupting the clock? And what is the contribution of that disruption to disease severity? Yep. There might be five different things going on, but one may be the most severe contribution to disease and then the other ones can be modulators and we have to figure out how to fix circadian rhythm in those patients because in the, our treatment options are very limited. Sure. We don't have um, FDA approved 
drugs that will improve circadian clock. Um, and then the question is, can we at least give melatonin to help people sleep? And that's again, we have to do controlled study to see what is the cost benefit ratio of giving melatonin versus taking monitoring them closely and giving them other therapy. Mm -hmm. Well, it's a, uh, it's a fascinating area of biology. Uh, and I, I'm glad you're doing it because as you were saying at the beginning, it's, uh, there's a lot here to be explored. And uh, you know, everything you've taught us today um, about how this is all connected and, and all, the, uh, all the systems and all potential chronic diseases that uh, the, our chronobiology uh, uh, links into is just uh, is so extensive. And I, I, I really, you know, wishing you the best with all of this work. And it's going to be fun to continue to watch uh, how your lab progresses uh, in these different directions. Um, for, for everybody that's going to be uh, listening to this particular episode on the podcast networks or watching uh, on the YouTube channel, you've been listening to Dr. Sachin Panda, Professor of Regulatory Biology Laboratory, Rita Richard Atkinson Chair at the Salk Institute for Biologic Studies, founding executive member of the Center for Circadian Biology at UC San Diego. Check out www.mycircadianclock.org to access the unique smartphone tool that they've developed uh, to, uh, to access uh, the extent to which your circadian rhythm may be concurrently disrupted. Also, of course, pick up his book, uh, The Circadian Code. Um, Dr. Panda, I want to thank you for taking the the time out of your schedule to talk to us for a little while. Obviously, thank you for everything you're doing there at the lab. And as we say on this show, uh, thanks for helping to create a better tomorrow through all the research you're doing. Really fascinating story. Thank you so much. And uh, have a perfect circadian day. <laughs> you too.